session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show is Becoming Human by Michael Tomasello, Becoming Human, A Theory of Ontogeny. And I read one of his books, I think it was on the evolution of moral behavior human moral behavior and so interested to check this one out and share it with you next week becoming human by michael tomasello which has a uh, evolutionary focus as does the book of the week from last week that i'll talk about tonight which is exercised by daniel e lieberman exercised why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding And so that subtitle, usually the subtitles give you a lot of information here. I feel like that's a very uh, powerful and even in some ways summarizes the books, the book in a lot of ways, because that's a very important thing. Why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. And I'll get into that. But even the title of the book, Exercised, so it's kind of a play on words. Um, Exercise, as he puts in the beginning of the book with some definitions, is voluntary physical activity that is planned, structured, repetitive, and undertaken to sustain or improve health and fitness, where exercised is an adjective which means to be vexed, anxious, worried, harassed. And so the title of the book is basically speaking to how we can be very exercised, stressed and worried, about exercise, doing it or not doing it, and um, how it's affecting our health. And so Daniel Lieberman in this book He talks about how when we try to understand exercise and its effects on us and also our desires or lack of desire to do physical activity, it can be important not to just look at industrialized individuals, but to look at hunter-gatherers and other individuals who might not be um, living in an industrial context to better understand our evolutionary history and our evolutionary relationship to physical activity and exercise. So throughout the book, he goes through different chapters that look at different aspects of physical activity from sitting to sleeping, even to walking, running, even a chapter on um, fighting and dance, no, running and dancing, and looks at Yes, current contemporary Western cultures, which is commonly studied when people look at research on exercise and how it affects health and health outcomes, but also looking at individuals who are not in industrial society. So we better understand where these behaviors might be coming from or how to understand them. And so this this title of the book or the subtitle, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding, as he points out, and I think very importantly, 
although we have a lot of shaming about exercising or if you don't exercise, it's evolutionarily understandable and quite explainable our desire not to exercise or the fact that we don't want to do it. As biological creatures, we are geared towards making sure we survive to, of course, then reproduce. But in order to survive, one of the very important factors is having enough energy to survive, having enough calories to sustain yourself, to survive, make sure you have enough for the future, and then make sure you can do the activities needed to survive and then reproduce. And so from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't make sense to spend what's considered extra energy or energy that does not do something tangible. So as he says, if you probably showed our ancestors, someone running on a treadmill, so running and not getting anywhere, they would probably be very, very confused and have no idea why you were doing such a thing. And he's talked about at times where he's been in these different hunter-gatherer um, societies and he's the only one who's going for a run just to run. They don't really do that except for sometimes it's some ritualized or they even sometimes have contests or races that have some specific value. But to just run for your health is not something that our ancestors did because that wasn't what makes sense in survival. If you are doing enough to survive, you're not going to expend extra energy. But here's where we have this mismatch. Because in current industrialized society, we have made it so that so much that takes effort is not something we have to do or have to actually expend energy on from things like, of course, cars and planes and other things that transport us places to all the devices we have that help us do things. Most of us don't have to physically do much to obtain the calories we need to survive. And not only that, our access to calories and high calorie foods is very, very easy. And of course, often too easy, which is why we can have this mismatch that our body is still going to crave things like sugars and fats and high carbohydrate types of foods because we didn't find those much in our ancestral environment. And so when you did, it was important to take advantage of that. But now we can access those foods while at the same time expend way less energy in general, but essentially no energy to get those foods. And this is why we have this mismatch, which leads to uh, many things we're dealing with. Of course, things like obesity epidemics, which relates to things like type 2 diabetes and other type of health issues. Um, so we can understand that we are in this mismatch, but also we can understand and as he says, I think we should approach it with compassion when people have a hard time exercising or getting themselves to be active. And so this is where that mismatch lies is that our ancestors, and if you look at hunter-gatherer um, societies, they are much more active day to day. Now, he puts the numbers up um, and there's numbers throughout the book of different research looking at different things. And so it's not that they are necessarily so over the top more active, but definitely more active on a, a daily basis compared to the average, let's say someone in America. Um, but they are definitely more active day to day in different 
ways and every day. And they are doing different things like walking, moving around, um, digging, carrying things. And of course, the men usually doing things more like hunting, which could be more running and also then pursuing and using strength in different ways as well. Um, the women who are doing more of the, uh, let's say, gathering, but also carrying oftentimes have to use a lot of strength for that also. So we have this mismatch, and he goes throughout the book looking at how we could better understand ourselves while we understanding what it means to be human and the activity level we are used to doing. Another very important um, issue that came up uh, for me, I thought, was the aging aspect. So we tend to think, as is the case usually in Western types of societies, that your strength and your fitness drops off considerably. And when we do research, we find exactly that, that we see health deteriorating overall, but not just health as far as things like diseases, but strength and physical capacity. But when you look at even extant uh, hunter-gatherer societies, you see that as people age, they actually don't get that much weaker. And the elderly individuals of the community are still very active and very capable of doing things physically. And so we can see it's definitely one of those use it or lose it types of things that we experience that if you become inactive as is really what we expect in old age in let's say America and most Western societies, unfortunately you become weaker. And so if we actually allow our family members, friends, loved ones, and ourselves as we get older to actually not reduce our activity, it can help keep us stronger and more fit as we age. Uh, he talks about, for example, there's something called a grandmother hypothesis, which I've seen before, which is that when we try to understand, for example, in human females, from an evolutionary perspective, what's the advantage of living post-menopause for many years, even decades? If you consider you can no longer reproduce and then your own children are now adults and no longer dependent on you. And so there's the grandmother, really, probably we can say grandparent also, because it could be similar for males, although they don't go through menopause, but say similarly might stop reproducing at a certain age, that they help support their grandchildren, also other kin. And we see that when you look at hunter-gatherer societies, that actually sometimes the grandmother might even be more active than the mother because the mother might be nursing a child. The grandmother actually might be physically even more active, doing more work than her daughter, who is more focused on things like breastfeeding and taking care of the kids in that way. So I thought that was uh, interesting. There's also a you know, general recommendation of how much to exercise. And so he had a, a chapter that started off with kind of an allegory about figuring out what's the best way to exercise. And there isn't one best way. So you'll hear people like, oh, I do CrossFit, I do Orange Theory, I do yoga, I do running, I do all these things. And there are different things to look at with each one of those types of exercises. But to say there was one and only one best way to exercise is not true and doesn't hold a lot of value. What is important is to look at what's the type of exercise you like. Because since it is something in a way against our, as it says, we were not evolved to do exercise. Since it's against us, we were evolved to be physically active. But when we don't need to be active, we were not evolved to want to be active in that way to get started with it. 
What's important is to find something that you enjoy doing. So we make it fun. He also said if we can make it necessary in some way. And in that way, related to it, if you can make it social, can also be important. So if you find an activity that you're going to do five times a week, and it's even like, let's say, okay exercise, but there's something that you can force yourself to do once a week or twice a week that's better, you're probably better off doing the thing you can do more often and more consistently. And a number that comes up in some research, and he points it out that like any of these things, it's not some hard and fast rule, but what they find is for adults, 150 minutes of active exercise. And if you do vigorous exercise, it's basically like two to one. So 75 minutes for cardio. And then if you do weights about twice a week, some kind of weight training or resistance training, that seems to be a fairly good level that then protects you um, and helps promote your health in many ways, both physically and mentally. And in the last chapter, he goes through different illnesses that are related to physical activity and how they can be helped by physical activity with obesity and diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and then also section on mental health where he talks about depression and anxiety specifically. And what we see is that for every one of those illnesses and also things like heart disease, um, exercise can be very helpful in at least, or at least a little bit helpful to very, very helpful in promoting our health in that way. And so because it is something we did not evolve to do and a little bit challenging to get ourselves going, I also think that although you won't just be convinced by reading research, it doesn't necessarily always convince us. People can know that smoking causes lung cancer, but they have a very hard time stopping, especially if they are smoking, even though they see the data, even seeing the images. Uh, I think it can be helpful even for me. I was more physically active this week reading this book, had it more in my mind. I kind of joked with my cousins yesterday. I was like, I'm sitting here reading a book about exercising because I had to sit and read, but then when in between or for a little breaks, so I would keep myself more active. And actually the part about sitting was interesting for me. You maybe have heard this statement that sitting is the new smoking. And as he says, that's definitely hyperbolic because if you look at the research, but also if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, they sit a lot actually for hours a day. Now, the way they sit is a little bit more active. They don't have a, a chair like the one I'm sitting in. And so we were used to sitting or squatting in ways that took some effort. And so it could be good to make sure you don't sit for prolonged periods of time. And if you do, you, you can even do things like active sitting, which might even be squirming, like fidgeting. You know, usually if someone's fidgeting, we say it's annoying or um, as a psychologist, we look for things, you know, could be anxiety or ADHD if someone is fidgeting like that. But it actually can burn some calories and it could counteract some of the negative effects of prolonged sitting. So as he mentions in, in that section, he says, you know, be okay. It's okay to squirm. Don't just sit still. That's okay. And try not to sit for very long periods of time. So for me, where my work actually involves sitting for 50 minutes straight and then having a few minutes break, I thought about that. Um, can I kind of do some more active sitting, but then also um, maybe walk or move around a little bit between sessions a bit more. But to say that it's the new smoking, he says is a bit extreme, but it's something to be aware of. But overall, it's something to be mindful of overall, that although we are living in a very different type of society and our day-to-day -day is very different, if we understand our bodies and what they were evolved to do, 
if we can actually help counteract the challenges we face to stay more active. And really, it's hard to force ourselves to stay active. But once you do it and create habits, it can become easier. And once you recognize and are reminded of all the benefits, hopefully that can keep you motivated because it is something hard to do. Even he says himself, he's studying exercise. And at the end of the book, he says how sometimes he's going to go out for a run and he doesn't want to go, but he reminds himself, you know, of how helpful and important it is. And that helps him um, get out the door. So he kind of talks about when he's exercised about exercise, um, he reminds himself that, you know, his brain is there to help move his body rather than his body just move his brain but anyway really great book i'd heard a lot about it and knew i would enjoy it very research focused and you learn a lot about the human body human activity in different ways that different types of activities and inactivity affect us so i I hope you'll check it out exercised by daniel e lieberman let's go to a commercial break we'll be right back welcome back so uh, last week, I, I put a tweet out about something that had come to mind um, seeing, working with clients and just in general, but it came to me in a certain way. So let me read it for you and then I'll, I'll talk about it tonight. So I wrote, if you think you are responsible for everyone else's feelings, you'll become irresponsible to your own feelings. So if you think you are responsible for everyone else's feelings, you'll become irresponsible to your own feelings. And so this came about seeing when you... Um, look at an individual, if you call them like a people pleaser, and they are trying to make sure everyone is okay. And beyond that, it's not just trying to make sure people are okay. They can feel a responsibility at times for how people feel. So if someone is upset, especially if it's at them, but even in general, they might feel responsible for them to make sure that they are okay, to make sure they're not mad at them. There's almost this panic to make sure the other person is okay. But If we're going to make ourselves responsible for others' feelings, the only way we can do that is to put away our own feelings. So that's why I was saying if you make yourself responsible to others' feelings, you have to become irresponsible to your own feelings. So someone gets upset with you and you maybe felt like what you said was okay, but now you have to go back on, no, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I I didn't want to say that. I'm so sorry. Please, you know, don't be mad at me. So you have to essentially put your own feelings away. You have to not care about them and in that way be irresponsible to your own feelings. Now, in the comments, it was interesting. A few people uh, wrote things about how this is difficult, um, which it is, and it can be for some people if this is your challenge. We all have challenges that we're dealing with. It can be a very difficult one to change, and I'll, I'll talk about why. And even someone wrote, for example, with their kids. Now, I'll say one thing about with your kids, depending on their age, you are to some degree more responsible for how they feel to a degree. So if you have a baby, you are now com- not completely responsible. They'll still be sad. Sometimes they're pain or they're teething and they're hurting or they cry. So you're not responsible in the sense that they should always only be happy, but you have a big impact in how they are feeling. And so I would say there's more of a responsibility. Now, it doesn't mean if your baby is sad, you are a bad parent. Babies almost have to cry. That's part of being a baby, the only way they can communicate. And as your children get older, still you have, I would say, more responsibility than you do have to anyone else. But still, you're not responsible for how they feel, and especially how they're feeling all the time. 
and to make yourself preoccupied with making sure they only feel good when sometimes they need to feel bad or feel other things as well. So in that relationship, someone commented on that I can understand, but it's still finding that balance. And especially what can be challenging is as they get older, recognizing how that relationship shifts considerably to the point where when they are adults, you're not responsible for their feelings, just like you're not responsible for anyone else's. Now, another thing that came up in in the comments and um, I could see how it could sound like the quote is saying, you shouldn't care what anyone else feels. Now, it doesn't mean you don't care about other people's feelings. That's not healthy. You should care about how your loved ones feel. There's a difference between caring and even being supportive and even trying to help someone um, versus being responsible for them. So if your loved one is feeling sad and it makes you care and feel a little bit sad and connect with them, that's different from what if you're saying, oh, they're sad, I have to make them happy. Or maybe something I say could make them sad, so I'm going to hold my own feelings in to make sure they don't get sad. That's very different. But it's definitely not saying in that quote that I put out there that you shouldn't care what people feel. That's actually uh, not healthy and would not be where we want to be. The difference is we can care, but still do the same thing that we want to do, which might sound like a paradox. So you might say, I'm going to share this with my partner and I know it might hurt their feelings and or they tell you it hurt their feelings, but it doesn't mean you have to take it back. And that's where people can have a challenge is that I said this and it made my partner sad. I shouldn't have said it. Now, if your intention is to hurt your partner, yeah, that's very different. If you are intending to hurt someone, that's something you should think about. Well, where is that anger coming from? Is that something I want in my relationship? But let's say your partner did something you didn't like and you know that bringing it up will make them upset, but you think it's important to share your feelings so you don't want to be irresponsible to your own feelings. And you also want to be in a relationship with your partner where you are open and express your feelings and express, especially when your partner does something you do or don't like, then your intention is to share it, knowing that it might hurt them, but knowing that this is more important than just if their feelings get hurt in that moment. So we can see that it doesn't mean you don't care about how others feel, but that you won't feel responsible for it. And as a result, won't completely change what you think, feel, and do to make sure the other person feels okay. Now, where might this come from, this type of responsibility? So we all care a bit, everyone. If you say something and someone gets really sad, we might all have an urge to walk it back or change something if we're really worried about the other person. But if we go back to childhood, what's really important is how parents responded to your feelings and how much parents were able to handle their own feelings. So if you had a parent, and I think uh, I've mentioned this book many times, I think it's a great one on this type of a topic, uh, The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. If you um, had a parent who was emotionally not able to take care of themselves, not able to stay balanced, then they likely, consciously and unconsciously, were looking to you or putting some of the pressure on the child to take care of their feelings. So 
they were feeling sad and they would come to the kid to try to cheer them up. Or they were, uh, if the child got sad, it would make them really sad and the child learned in a way they have to put their own feelings away because the way the, ch- the parent responded was so overwhelming or made them feel so concerned that they put their feelings away. And so this is why as a parent, you want to be so aware of how you respond to your children's feelings because it's like many things, a balance. You, of course, don't want to show you don't care and invalidate it and just say, who cares, or I'm not affected by it at all. But you also don't want to overreact. We might think, oh, it's so nice to show my child I care, so they're sad, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sad too. It's making me so sad. If you're sad, I'm crying, and now you're the one that's more hysterical than them. That's not good because what happens is the child is going to have to come take care of you and freaks out like, oh, like that made me feel really bad. Uh, Let me now take care of mom or dad. And, you know, maybe I don't want to do that again. I don't think it's comfortable to share my feelings with my parent because they get so upset. And that feels so scary to a little child, especially their parent is this stable force that makes them feel protected, makes you feel secure, makes you literally you're dependent on them to survive from until a very, uh, you know, pretty old age compared to especially on other animals. But for a long time, you're dependent on them. So it's scary if your parent looks like they're falling apart. And if you did something that made them look like they were falling apart, you're like, geez, I don't want to do that again. And so lots of kids will learn from a young age that it doesn't feel safe to tell my parents how I feel. Of course, other things that can happen is telling them, you know, they're bad for feeling this way or it's annoying or no one's going to like you if you're sad or mad or all those things as well. But there's various ways that we teach our children to disown, to undervalue, to invalidate and avoid as much as they can their own feelings. Ideally, what you can do as a parent is try to contain both your own feelings, but because of that, create a space to contain your child's feelings as well. So your child comes to you and is sad. We've all seen this. We can even feel this type of parenting where the mother, let's say the child falls down and is crying. The mother might show some, oh, you hurt yourself. Like there's some sadness there. There's a, a empathy there. There's a way of connecting with the child and understanding they are in pain and feeling with them. But they're also containing it, first of all, themselves and the child, and also giving a reassurance that, oh, you're hurting. I could see that hurt. You're going to be okay. So giving a positive feeling, not you have to be okay now and you shouldn't feel pain, but giving them that hope and comfort that you are going to be okay. So they're soothing them, teaching our child how to self-soothe and how not to be afraid of their feelings. But if the parent responds with an overwhelming response or makes the child feel bad for how they make them feel as a parent, and they'll say that, oh, you know what? You just ruined my day or you make everything so bad when you cry or you do these things. The child can start to feel like I should put my own feelings away. And also the scary thing for the child is If I make the person feel bad, if I make my parent feel bad, but then internalized to all others, they go away. I lose them. I lose their love and maybe I lose the relationship. And so this is why it can be this panicky feeling. And this also could be related to things like anxious attachment. Um, There's usually overlap with a lot of these types of things that are, uh, let's say, anxious or something that makes us feel uncertain or insecure, but they can be insecurely or anxiously attached because there's a sense that at any given moment I could lose this relationship. So as a parent, you have a lot of responsibility 
not necessarily for what your child feels all the time, but for how they feel about sharing their feelings. And this is something very often in therapy when I ask a client, what does it feel like or what do you remember feeling like sharing your feelings with your parents? And we can go, let's say, to both parents, mom, dad, whoever it is. And, you know, oftentimes there's almost this like shock on their face like, oh, I can't even imagine telling maybe like, let's say their mom or their dad to cry to them or to tell them they were sad now or as a child, they don't have a lot of memories of doing it. Now, we can be pretty sure when they were a baby and then a toddler, they were probably crying and couldn't hold it in, and they would anyway. And so they did probably cry to their mom or dad, but who knows how they responded then. But likely those responses and the later ones made them feel like it was not safe to express those feelings. So as a parent, you're not responsible for all of your kids' feelings or really for how your kid feels as they get older, especially. But you want to put a big responsibility on yourself of how comfortable do I make my child feel to share their feelings that I do have a big responsibility for and making sure I take that one very seriously. Now, if you are someone, an adult who finds yourself feeling so responsible for how others feel, it it can be very scary. And so it's easy to say, just don't care, which is the common advice. And that's on the surface, what you want to do or to care less. But as is always the case, if you look at someone else's problem, that When you don't have that problem, it always looks easy. I was talking about this book about exercise. If you exercise regularly, if you see someone who doesn't exercise, you're like, what's wrong with them? If you have someone who has a drug problem, you say, it's so easy. Don't Don't take that drug. Don't drink. Don't do this thing. Do more of this. Do less of that. It's very easy to just tell people how to solve their problem. And in that way, if we look at it, most problems, the solution as far as a theoretical solution is not that complicated often. Most of them are not that complicated, but actually executing it is very hard. And often the fact that something became someone's problem means that for that person, it's actually going to be hard to stop caring. So if you're someone who doesn't care that much about what other people feel, or you don't have at all the sense of responsibility for how people feel, it's easy for you. But if you're someone who feels so terrified to make someone upset because it brings up all these feelings of losing the relationship or some extreme intense reaction of anger or uh, distance or, you know, disapproval, it can feel very scary to then sit with that. But I would recommend one, looking at where those pains are coming from. So therapy can be a great way of exploring those childhood relationships that likely helped create this mindset of being responsible for how other people feel. But like any type of growth, you're going to have to sit with the discomfort of not reacting the way you tend to react, meaning that probably starting with small doses, at least sharing something you feel or being with someone and even saying something that you know makes them upset and sitting with it, leaving them, let's say the conversation ends and you might have this urge, I should call them and fix it. I should call them and fix it. And you have to sit through it and be like, okay. I'm going to try to sit through this knowing that probably it's going to be okay. And really, if you tell yourself the truth, if you got upset with your friend and shared your feeling, especially if you did it in a respectful way and the friendship ended, well, what kind of a friend did you have? What kind of a relationship did you have? So as always, growth means pushing out of our comfort zone. It always means doing something that doesn't feel good in the moment, but it's the only way we can grow. And if you find yourself someone who feels responsible for others' feelings, 
it's going to take some of that discomfort to grow and also ask yourself, and even likely it'll bring up some feelings, to have some compassion for yourself, imagining how you've been irresponsible to your own feelings all these years, how you haven't listened to yourself in what you're feeling and what you want. You always had to make it or you felt you had to make it about the other person. Hopefully you can recognize the, the value in your own feelings and the disservice you're doing and how irresponsible you have been to yourself and how this goes back to the irresponsibility you experienced as a child to how your feelings were attended to. But only you can change that now. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I wanted to continue from that previous segment, looking at when we feel we are responsible for other feelings and how it makes us irresponsible to our own feelings, to a distinction between being nice and being kind, which I think to a lot of people when they hear nice and kind, they think, oh, that's the same thing. Those are the same words. And of course, words have definitions, but they're also used in different ways by different people. So you might use them interchangeably in a way, but I actually think they mean quite different things. And that actually nice, although it sounds pleasant, sounds nice, to me is actually not a good thing. Whereas kindness is a good thing coming from the right place. So if we look at when someone tells you that you are nice, or we talk about that someone is nice, and maybe you, if you think about it, you'll say that's me, that you are the person that's called nice, or you've seen people in your life and you see them being called nice. What do we usually mean? Well, we mean someone who is pleasant, who makes things easy for others, who doesn't challenge or create any conflict or disagreement. We really see all of the trademark characteristics of a people pleaser. So nice is not actually being good for the right reasons. You're not being kind to others because you want them genuinely to feel good from a good place. It's because you want to avoid conflict because you're afraid of conflict. Uh, you're also afraid people won't like you if you create conflict. You want people to like you. You want people to think you're good. Uh, you're afraid to lose people. So you do all those things to be nice. Now, of course, when I talk about someone being nice and then someone being kind, no one is only one thing or one characteristic. But we do tend to have tendencies. We tend to have tendencies. We sometimes will do things more than we do other things. And that's what we're talking about here. So nice, although it sounds good, it's not coming from a good place. It's coming more from fear rather than a place of strength. It's coming more from weakness than strength in the sense that it's a fear of losing people, a fear of people not liking you, a fear of how people react if you do make them upset. And that's what will make you nice. So I actually think that we should think of nice as a bad word rather than a good word. So then if you look at kindness, kindness is coming from a place of strength. I'm not doing something nice for you or loving for you or someone because I want them to like me or because I w want to look good to other people 
or I'm afraid if I don't, you won't love me or you won't um, do something for me in return. I'm doing it from a genuine place in my heart that wants to do those things, a genuine place inside of me that wants to do this action, that wants to, whatever it is, get a gift, say something nice, right? Someone can give a compliment. Sometimes a compliment can be nice. You just say it because you think the other person will like it and it'll make them like you. Sometimes you genuinely want to share something you think, and then also you want to make the other person feel better. It feels good to you to make them feel better in a way of actually caring about them. And so you might say something that's kind to them, say a compliment to them. So often, nice and kind behaviors can look the same. The intention is what's going to be different, but they might look the same. Someone brings you a gift. Is it coming from a place of kindness or niceness? You might not actually know. What really we want to look at is our own actions and ask yourself, well, why did I do that thing? Or why am I doing this thing? And of course, when we're nice, most people like that, especially if they're not that close to us or even if they're pretty close to you because it makes things easier for them. So you're going to get reinforced and that's part of the problem. When we're nice to people, they say, oh, that person was so nice. Oh, so good to have them there. In a way, they're saying they didn't create any problems. They didn't do anything I didn't like. That felt really good. It was really pleasant. But that's not kindness, which is coming from strength. Another problem with niceness is that it's a break on closeness. If I'm being nice, doing these pleasant things just to avoid conflict, to avoid you disliking me, to make you like me, to make people think I'm a good person, to see me in a good way, to win people's love, then I'm not being genuine. And so because of that, niceness is going to be a break on how close you can be with someone. If someone is not real with you, you can't get that close. You're limited by how genuine and how vulnerable someone is. You can't get closer than someone is willing to be open with you. And so if you're just being nice, it's not going to lead to much. And if you've ever been in a relationship, whether it's romantic or friendship or a family relationship with someone who is nice, you will feel this wall. Because initially it's very pleasant. You can meet them and oh, everything's so nice and good and feels good. And that feels like it's a good thing. But then when you try to get closer, there's an emptiness that will be there. Oh, hey, what do you want to do? Oh, it's okay. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. Whatever you want to do is fine with me. Okay. Um, okay, well, tell me, like, was there anything I said? You didn't? Like, no, 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 everything you said is great. You only said uh, nothing was bad. Okay. H have I ever done something you don't like? No, no, no. It's all, everything is good. And so you can see that there is an emptiness that doesn't allow for genuine connection to be made. Not only that, actually, when you're in a relationship with someone who is nice, you start to get frustrated because you realize you know they're not always okay, and then it'll start to show up in ways, of course, the person is nice, but then usually if they are angry, it's going to be passive aggressive. So they'll act out in different ways, make comments to show that anger, show when they're upset. And so the person starts to know, okay, they're not always okay. And now you feel like it's actually interesting. It almost becomes your responsibility. You can feel like to figure out what the nice person is feeling because they're not going to share it with you, which I guess makes sense. If they are being irresponsible to their own feelings, that responsibility can at times spill over or feel like it's going to come on to someone else's shoulders. Now, it's not your responsibility, but you can feel that way in the relationship. So you might try to read 
your partner's mind. Some people just wouldn't care to begin with, but some might try to read their partner's mind. Well, he or she tells me they're not upset, but I know later on, sometimes I can realize they were. So wait, are they upset right now? Maybe, maybe they don't like this. So let me suggest something, but how do I know they're going to like it? I know they're going to say it's okay, but how do I know they actually like it? So we actually see this is why being nice is actually not so good. It's actually bad because you are in a way putting the pressure on other people to take care of your feelings because you're not being true to yourself. If I don't know if doing this makes you feel good or makes you feel bad, then I don't really know what to do. I feel like I can't ask you. Asking you has no value. And so I have to try to guess for myself. And it creates this insecurity in the relationship and a lack of closeness because we don't really know each other. And now the pressure is on others. So we actually can realize that when we don't take responsibility for our own feelings, we can actually start to put that responsibility onto others. And actually people pleasers tend to do this in a degree because they don't feel right to share their feelings. They weren't responded to well when they did express their needs, express their feelings. They start to hope that the other person will read their mind. There's this fantasy that the other person will just know. And sometimes you'll hear it that oh, I just want someone who just knows when I'm upset and gives me what I doesn't do the thing I don't like, you know, stops doing the thing or will know my need and just meet it. How good would that feel? And it feels good in two ways. One, I won't have to voice it, which makes me feel uncomfortable. And two, I won't have to voice it, which means that if they just did it spontaneously, they really wanted to do it. So this is like the classic, um, and I think it was that movie, The Breakup. It's like, I want you to want to do the dishes, you know, or I want you to want to bring me flowers, not for me to ask you to bring me flowers, because once I ask you, it changes the value of it. And so someone who is used to their needs not being met and not expressing them is hoping the other person will read their mind. So we can see that when we are being nice and these associated qualities that can come with it, we actually hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us when we actually start to get closer. In a surfacey way, it can be very pleasant. Someone nice added to a situation doesn't add much negativity. Sadly, I don't mean this to be offensive to anyone who is nice, but you don't really add much good either. You're not going to really contribute much if you're just being nice. Again, this doesn't mean being kind is bad. That's actually very good and something I think we should strive towards is genuine kindness. But if you're just being nice, you won't add much bad, that's true, but you won't add much good either. And so this is definitely not an argument towards being mean. I don't think that's good at all. And I think sometimes people use that as an excuse. So they say, yeah, see, being nice or being fake is like, you know, not good. And so, yeah, I can be as mean as I want and not care about how what I'm doing affects other people. Going back to the previous conversation about responsibility, that I'm not responsible for how other people feel, but I can be aware of my actions and how they affect other people. And if I'm being harsh in a way that is not something genuine in me, if I'm being mean in a way that hurts other people, I can at least look at that and evaluate what I'm doing. And so what I am proposing is not being nice and giving that up, but striving to express more kindness to everyone around you in a genuine way. So again, you can greet someone on the street and say, good morning, hope you have a nice day. And many of us probably do it in a nice way. We just do it because we maybe think we have to, or it's going to look good, but you can genuinely feel love for someone you're just meeting. It could be a stranger. 
and want to express that to them with something polite and kind. It doesn't have to be fake. It can be real. And there's even a type of meditation, sometimes loving kindness meditation is what it could be referred to, where you try to expand this circle of your feeling of kindness and compassion. And you actually first start with yourself. And so looking at the time with just two, three minutes left, won't go in depth into that part and how important it can be to genuinely feel self-love and compassion to love others. But it starts there and you meditate on expressing a, a strong feeling of love and compassion for yourself. And then you start to expand that circle, then going to loved ones, which tends to be pretty easy, but also focusing on that for some time. But then you start expanding that circle more and more to even just strangers. Can you start to feel that? Then even worse than what might be strangers is people you dislike. People you, for example, had a bad interaction with an ex, an ex-wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, or someone who... Uh, treated you bad in some way. That can be very challenging. And then, of course, you eventually try to just have it for the whole world, all beings, uh, all living beings and the whole universe included in that. And now it's not to think that you should be able to do this. Uh, I've worked with clients before where this comes up, that not to think, okay, you're going to do one 10-minute meditation. By the end, you're going to have pure kindness for every living creature, including any enemy you've ever made in, in your life. No, but it's something you can work towards as cultivating this feeling of care and loving kindness and compassion for others. And it definitely does begin with the self. And if we come back to the core of something that came up in this conversation about niceness in relationships, that when you genuinely love yourself and you make sure you're taking care of yourself or I'm responsible for myself, you create the context to then have a relationship with someone else where you can truly love them too. And in a truly loving romantic relationship bond, it's not that it becomes all about you or all about them, but that you make it a mutual type of experience where you are both taking care of one another, but they can never know what you are feeling. You're going to have to share that and they can't, you can't know what they're feeling. They have to share that, but you can both feel that you're going to help take care of one another. So I hope we'll move away from niceness and move towards genuine kindness. I'll talk more about this on future shows for sure. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. 